The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been walking through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon describes the life of all Jesus' true followers. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes, which describe the traits of people connected to Christ and the divine blessings that rest on those who evidence those traits. After the Beatitudes in verses 13 through 16, Jesus gives two metaphors one of salt and one of light, to illustrate the influence that his followers will exert in their community and all around the world. Having described his followers' character and their influence, Jesus now begins to describe their righteousness. Now, righteousness, at its most basic meaning, means rightness. Things as they are supposed to be, as God intended. The righteousness of Jesus' disciples, as described in this context of the sermon, is not simply about a new legal status that Christians have because they are no longer regarded as condemned sinners, but viewed as sons and daughters of the king, justified and adopted. Of course, righteousness entails that, But Jesus is also describing how this new status of being in a right relationship with God corrects a disciple's thinking and his living, making that right too. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus sets our thinking straight, making it right and true. And in verses 19 and 20, as we'll see next week, Jesus clarifies how his followers live rightly. So this week, right thinking. Next week, right living. And this whole section of verses 17 through 20 serves as a pivot point between the Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon. We see here the general principles that Jesus will use as he spells out in detail what right thinking and what right living looks like in various areas of life regarding issues of anger or sex, marriage and divorce, relating to people who are out to get you, enemies, giving, paying, fasting. So let us look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to follow along with one of the Bibles in the pew and turn to page 810. Let me pray for us. God, open our hearts so that we can understand your word. Some of the things in this brief few verses are easy to understand. Others are a little bit more difficult. But help us to understand and to think rightly about you, about Jesus, about what you have done for us. And as you correct our thinking, we ask that you change our lives. Do this for your glory and our greater enjoyment of you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Picking up in the middle of the sermon at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Three things to get our thinking straight. We need to first identify people's concerns with Jesus. Second, we need to understand the terminology and vocabulary of Jesus in the text. And as we understand those two things, it will clarify the mission of Jesus, which is he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Notice verse 17, right at the beginning. Do not think... I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Why would Jesus need to say this? Well, people were concerned he was doing exactly just that, that Jesus was setting aside the law and the prophets. He was ignoring God's law, undermining the prophets by presuming to speak with his own authority. The leaders were disturbed how Jesus treated God's law, particularly the Sabbath, how Jesus had the audacity to allow his followers to walk through a field and pick off heads of grain. That seemed to them to be harvesting, which was work on the Sabbath. And he also healed people on the Sabbath. Weren't the other six days sufficient for that kind of work? Religious leaders were also offended by how Jesus ignored their traditions. He didn't keep their traditions of washing hands before meals and fasting during their times, certain times of the year. Now, if you actually go back and you read the law, you realize that Jesus' actions never actually violated any of the laws on the Sabbath or on washings. He did threaten the religious leaders' authority and their interpretation of the law, but those were man-made traditions. But more significantly... People were deeply alarmed by how Jesus seemed to usurp the authority of Moses and the prophets. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they spoke, they would base their authority on phrases like this, Thus saith the Lord. But when Jesus spoke, he framed his teaching rather differently. He said, You've heard it was said, but I tell you. Jesus said things like that. Very different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, do this, do that, follow this way, that law, do this ritual, and you will be right with God. But Jesus would say things like, follow me, trust me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He pointed to himself, and they'd never heard anyone speak with that type of authority, audacious. Well, even the crowds were astonished by the things Jesus said. The opener to his sermon in his hometown shocked everyone. After he had read from the prophet of Isaiah, he sat down and all his friends and family members are watching, wondering what he's going to say. And this is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, you had to be brain dead not to recognize that Jesus was claiming that Isaiah was talking about him. Well, even the uneducated crowds noticed that Jesus didn't mince his words. He speaks with authority. They said, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Well, what would really blow their circuits was a little later when he was at Capernaum and Jesus said to a man who had been paralyzed, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the leaders said, Who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. Do you remember Larry, Moe, and Curly? Imagine Larry hit Moe in the face. And Curly says, Larry, I forgive you for hitting Moe in the face. And Moe responds, Curly, you can't forgive Larry. It's my face. Only I can forgive Larry for hitting me in the face. And he'd be absolutely right. See, the Jews were right to believe that only God could forgive sins, for all sin was against God. He is the one to whom all obedience is due. Yet here is a Jewish man from Nazareth, a carpenter who claims to have the same authority as God to forgive sins. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that forgives sins, who speaks with authority, who doesn't keep our traditions, who offends our religious authorities? You can begin to see why people had concerns about Jesus, that he was setting up another system, that he was abolishing the law and the prophets. Well, Jesus doesn't back down. He addresses their objections head on. And in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. See, Jesus doesn't remain silent. He speaks up and he clarifies his mission. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He was going to abolish man's traditions, possibly, when they became obstacles to a true understanding. He might abolish man's wrong understanding and correct that, but God's moral standards? No way. He would never abolish those. God's plan foretold through the prophets? Absolutely not. Well, that leads to our next point. See, now that we understand the concerns people had with Jesus, let us take a closer look at Jesus' response and clarify the terms that he used. Look at verse 17. He says, I have not come to abolish them, referring to the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, some of Jesus' vocabulary here is easy to understand. Other things are a little bit more difficult. Let's start with the easy stuff. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, let me repeat that. Truly, I say to you, this is vocabulary even a young child can understand. Reason number one for not thinking that Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets, wait for it, is because Jesus says, I say so. (laughs) Jesus wasn't afraid of coming across as paternalistic at times, but thankfully he didn't just say it. He backed up his claims with evidence and reason. Whatever Jesus did, he backed up. Look at my previous example when he forgave the leper, uh, the paralytic his sins. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And he heard the rumblings of the Pharisees and saying, who is this that forgives sins? That's blasphemy. And Jesus turned to them and said, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and says, rise, take up your mat and walk. 
He backed it up. And not only did he back it up with healing, but Jesus backed it up by dying on the cross because that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is paying the debt of those who have offended you. And Jesus absorbed the sins of all of his people and paid their penalty as the God-man so that his people would not have to pay for those sins. See, he backed it up on the cross. Whatever Jesus said he backed up, including his claim that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. At every turn, Jesus kept the law, every part of it. His love for God was evident even from childhood when they couldn't find him at age 12. Where was he? He was in his father's house, studying his father's words and debating with the scribes and the Pharisees. His love for others was even seen by his enemies, and it was most clearly seen by those who had been victimized and marginalized by society. See, Jesus lived exactly the kind of righteous life that the prophets expected Israelites to live but that they failed to live. So how does this apply? If you are a Christian, the chief reason you should believe that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets is because that's what he said, and he backed it up with reason and with evidence. So listen to him. There are many Christians who get caught up in the beauty and wonder of grace, but misconstrue it. Do not be deceived even by Christians who proclaim God's grace is so big, you don't need to obey him. He forgives you anyway. Take Jesus' word for it. He has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, on to the more complicated terms. That one was easy to understand. The term law and prophets. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes, what is meant by the law? And the prophets? Well, the answer is the whole Old Testament. You turn, if you, you can turn up pages for yourself, and you will find that wherever this expression is used, it includes the entire Old Testament canon. This is how Jesus used the term here. Dr. Lloyd Jones continues What then is meant by the law in particular at this point? And the word here means the entire law as given to the children of Israel. And that consisted of three parts. The moral law, the civil law, sometimes called the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. However, each of these parts of God's law differed somewhat regarding their purpose and thus differed in their fulfillment. The ceremonial law concerned all the rituals and sacrifices, the Levitical Uh, regulations that were connected to worship in the temple of God and elsewhere. The civil law refers to judicial laws of the nation of Israel, recorded, written down often as case law, and it applies the moral laws of God to the particular circumstances of Israel at that time. For example, what to do when you borrow your neighbor's cow and they fall into a ditch and die? Or What to do when you've gotten yourself into debt and lost your land, and it's the year of Jubilee? Well, every 50 years, you were to give it back to the family who had lost the land through being indebted. That was the civil law. The moral law consists of the Ten Commandments, 
and the righteous principles laid down since the creation of the universe and written on every single heart of every man and woman made in God's image. And this can be summarized in what Jesus said the greatest commandment was. And the second was like it. The greatest is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love others as yourself. That was the moral law. Well, now that we understand Jesus' vocabulary, we can identify his stated mission. He came to clarify that mission, which is to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Again, verse 17, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, there are two conditions placed upon the phrase, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. Those are, the first one, until heaven and earth pass away, meaning this present cosmos, or until all is accomplished, meaning a law has, has completely served its purpose. So what does this mean? Jesus is bending over backwards to clarify God is determined to accomplish his purposes and to accomplish them through Jesus. God will not fail to see things through to the end. God will not stop short until each and every law's purpose is accomplished and each and every prophecy comes true. Well, this frames all the various laws and prophecies within the context of Jesus' mission to completely accomplish all of God's purposes. Well, how does Jesus do this? The mission of Jesus to fulfill the law happens prophetically, personally, authoritatively, and completely in us. First, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law prophetically. Much of the Old Testament spoke of the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would be born seed of the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3, who would crush the head of the serpent but be wounded in the process. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. And remember that covenant ceremony that Abraham performed with God. Abraham cut up all these animals and laid out their body parts in two rows that sort of made a path in between. It's weird, I know. Strange to us, but that's the way they sealed covenants back then. It made sense to them. The greater Lord would make the covenant with a lesser Lord, and the lesser Lord would walk through the pieces saying, I promise to keep this covenant, and if I don't, let me be torn to pieces like this animal has been torn to pieces. Well, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he didn't make Abraham, who was the lesser Lord, walk through the pieces. God himself walked through it saying, if this covenant is broken, even by you, I will be the one that is torn to pieces. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled that covenant. He was the one who was literally cut to pieces, lashed, I should say, Jesus is also the son of David, who would establish an everlasting throne, secured with perfect justice and mercy for his people. God promised that to David, an everlasting throne. And we know that was fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus, where he was vindicated in his righteousness. And now Jesus has ascended, and he's sitting on the throne right now, ruling. 
also of all, the Old Testament ceremonial system pointed to Jesus and fulfilled uh, Jesus' mission here on earth. The temple, well, that was a house that symbolized God's dwelling among his people. But Jesus was the true temple. He's the actual dwelling of God among his people. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the true Lamb of God, whose death in our place protects God's people from the angel of wrath, the angel of death. Jesus is the bread of life, that same bread that would be in the holy place that showed that God provides and sustains and he's hospitable to his people. Well, Jesus is the bread of life, the one who makes both communion with God possible and upon whom we find life and sustenance for all our needs. The Old Testament gave us many object lessons, metaphors, types, if you will, that Well, they're a shadow outlining the shape and size and characteristics of God's promised one. Well, Jesus is the reality. He's not the shadow, but the reality. He fulfills the ceremonial law. And that's why we no longer need to keep the ceremonial law. It's already been fulfilled in Jesus. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, the temple will be destroyed and it will happen in this generation. And it was destroyed by the Romans within 40 years of when Jesus prophesied that it would be and never be rebuilt. Why? Well, the object lesson had been fulfilled. It was meant to point to Jesus. Well, Jesus came, and God wasn't going to allow it to stand because that would only cause confusion. He didn't want them continuing to offer sacrifices for their sin. He wanted them to trust in the one true Lamb of God who offered sacrifice once and for all. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophetically. More than that, he fulfilled the Old Testament authoritatively. As God himself, Jesus explained most fully, most completely, the true meaning of the Old Testament with its laws and regulations. The religious leaders thought themselves the best commentators of the law, but Jesus was its author. Now, maybe your family is like mine. It's filled with little commentators who pontificate on the meaning of various house rules set down by no other than mom. Right? We know how this plays out. We were all children once. Maybe before leaving to go to the grocery store, mom lays out certain rules. Finish your homework. Clean your room. You only get 30 minutes of screen time. And it isn't long after mom leaves before a disagreement uh, erupts between all the experts of the law. Mom wanted you to clean your room before you got your half hour of screen time, to which the predictable response is she never said first, second, and third, right? And confusion erupts as each child quotes, thus saith mom, claiming to apply her words in the right way, the objective way, which is suspiciously convenient. So how do we know what mom really meant by what she said? Who can fill in the gaps and give us a clearer, fuller understanding of the laws of the home? Well, as I look out at moms among us, you're nodding your head. We know exactly how we can figure this out. Who better to ask than mom? She can clarify them because she authored them. She can explain exactly what they do and don't mean and how they apply. Well, in the same way. Jesus fulfills the law of God by explaining its true intent 
and its meaning. As the author, he explains exactly what God did and did not mean. He gives us the most accurate, fullest expression of the law of God. And that's actually what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the religious leaders, like so many self-serving children that we were, cannot imagine that their interpretations were wrong, and so they take offense. What do you mean that's the right definition of sexual morality or fasting or praying or how to interact with people who are after you? But Jesus was not abolishing the law. They thought he was. He was setting up his own standards, new standards, and they didn't agree with theirs. But nothing could be further from the truth. He was merely explaining in in accurate and full detail the true intent of the law as its author. Jesus also fulfilled the law as given in the Old Testament personally. He was born under the law, and he kept it perfectly. The Old Testament instructs us God's will for man and how we are to relate to God to others and how we are to see ourselves. And Jesus lived that personally without fault or error. Jesus obeyed God's will even when he was on the cross. The night before, he's praying, your will, not my will, be done. Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength that even when he was suffering, he trusted God. He was better than Job. Jesus loved others, not just in the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life, but daily he was constantly waking up early and praying for his disciples, staying up late, healing those filled with diseases. And Jesus saw himself accurately as the Father saw him. He trusted the Father's love for him even when it looked like the Father had abandoned him, which is why Satan couldn't get a foothold into Jesus to tempt him. See, in every way, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law personally. He he fulfilled it Prophetically, he fulfilled it authoritatively. But lastly, Jesus fulfilled the law completely. And he will, he, he will fulfill it completely in us. See, for the Christian, Jesus has freed us from the penalty of sin by dying on the cross. That is once and done. But today and each day, he is freeing us more and more from the power of sin through his spirit that dwells in us. See, but until Jesus returns and frees us from the presence of sin, we need the moral law of God. Because as long as sin remains in our hearts, we will be tempted to become a law unto ourselves. See, when that old sin nature raises its ugly head, We will try to assert our own rules. And in self-deception, selfishness, and pride, we'll substitute our standards for God's. And in the process, we will wound others, we will wound ourselves, and we will grieve our God. Why? Because our law is self-made and hypocritical. And it's ever-changing. Just watch how kids play outside on the playground during a kickball game. They can't hide how hypocritical and self-serving their little laws are and how they apply it. They're not as good as hiding it as we are, but we do the same thing, condemning others and then defending ourselves for the same exact violations. Our law of self is convenient, self-serving, self-protective, and yet ultimately it's destructive and alienating. And that is why We will need God's law until this world passes away because sin remains in us and in others. 
We don't need God to yield to our law of self, which is finicky and ever-changing. What we need is God to hold the line on holiness and righteousness, for that is good. We need God's law to expose the remaining sin in our hearts so that we can repent and become more like Jesus. We need God's law to expose our desperate need for Jesus so that we trust him more and more and ourselves less and less until he gets all the glory and we share in all the joy. Thankfully, neither the law or prophets will pass away until all is accomplished. And that statement, until all is accomplished, that's a purpose statement It has to do with God's goals, his end goals. And thankfully, God's purpose for the ceremonial law was ended in Jesus. And thankfully, God's purpose for the civil law ended when Israel was replaced by the new Israel, the church, and not limited to one nation, but spreads across the whole world, transcending political boundaries, cultural boundaries. But God's end purpose for the moral law has not yet been accomplished. It will someday, in glory, when sin is present no more, but until then it remains. One May, a little British boy visited his grandparents, which happened to be our next-door neighbors, and I heard this boy bragging to my son, Jack, I can ride my bike without my stabilizers on. At first, my son was completely unfazed. This little British boy said all types of silly things he didn't understand. But eventually, he came to understand that he was teasing him and making fun of him for having training wheels on his bike and not being a real bike rider like himself. So it didn't take long before my son asked me to teach him to ride his bike without training wheels. And I really wanted to help him, not just to silence that little British boy, but because my end goal, although that was true, my end goal as a father was to help my son be a man. And that means ride his bike like a man. Well, eventually the goal was accomplished, not immediately. He wasn't ready. He kept crashing, wounding himself and his siblings. But eventually he was ready And the training wheels had served their purpose, and they were no longer needed, so they were removed. See, the moral law of God is like that. It remains until it has served its purpose. And in heaven, the training wheels will be taken off, and then we will really ride. Like the men and women God has created us to be, with no worries of crashing and ruining ourselves or ruining others. Don't you long for that day when you will no longer wrestle with envy for you will see your Savior face to face and be utterly filled with contentment when you no longer wrestle with bitterness because God's justice the just demands are fully met. When fear is no more because your perfect lover has driven out all your fears and you simply trust in him. When shame, hiding, and our self-protective reactions are not even a passing thought 
because you're filled with the joy and intimacy that comes from the one you can trust. And he always protects and cares and provides. See, have hope. The sin that so easily entangles you today will one day not exist. God will not rest till all that he has planned for you is accomplished and fulfilled. Jesus has already fulfilled so much, but I cannot wait until he fulfills all these other things completely and makes us holy like him. And he's going to do that for his people, for you and for me. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Thank you, God. Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it until all is accomplished. Forgive us for ever believing otherwise, for justifying our sins by saying it doesn't matter if we obey because you've forgiven. Help us to see how Jesus fulfilled the law and how he will not stop until we are able to fulfill it perfectly. And only then will the training wheels come off and we can ride like the men and women you want us to be. We pray this for your glory, for our freedom, and for our ultimate enjoyment of you. In Jesus' name, amen.